I'm going to continue talking about faith today. Um, This is Sunday number six, and we're going to keep going on all the different facets and aspects of faith for for several months. The reason I'm taking so long to do this is because faith is really important. In fact, it is the commodity of the kingdom, is one way another preacher has put it. Uh, faith is the commodity of the kingdom. It's, it's the currency of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the Bible tells us in several different places, Peter and James both write, that our faith is more valuable than gold. I think that faith is the most valuable thing in the universe, actually. I realize that somebody might think worship is the most valuable thing that there is to God, but we can worship in form And it's meaningless if we don't have faith. Faith is what puts the value in our worship. You can come here and sing the songs that Ted just led, and your mind is elsewhere, or your heart is not really in it, you don't really care, then you're you're still here to worship, but there isn't any life or value in it if it isn't by faith. So, So I say that faith is the most valuable thing. In the scriptures, we see the angels worshiping God, in perfect, holy worship. And they obey him with perfect obedience. But in all of the descriptions of angels, in all of the descriptions of the interaction between God and angels, there is there's something missing that we have between us and God, and that is love and faith. Right. I, I don't say that the angels don't love God, But they're up there in heaven seeing his glory and the rainbow and the crystal sea and all that he's doing and his majesty and power and glory. And they see it with their eyes and they're shouting so loud that it shakes the earth. Holy, holy, holy. But everything they do is in response to seeing God. And in God's interaction toward them, it's very, in scripture, it's very businesslike. God commands them and they go. They do their job and they return. But in Scripture, God's interactions toward us are all about love and our interaction toward God has to be by faith because we don't see His glory. We don't see the rainbow and the glory cloud and the crystal sea and all that He's doing. And and so we have to live by faith and not by sight. And with the angels, there's awe and there's amazement, and there's perfect obedience and perfect worship, but that's not the complete fulfillment of everything God wants. He wants something more than perfect worship. He wants a person's heart. And that has to be by faith. So love seems to be the exclusive transaction between people and God. I don't mean that God doesn't love his angels and that the angels don't love God, but in Scripture anyway, as described to us, that is completely missing in what is described to us. But it is all that God cares about in his relationship with us is his love and our love, a father with his children and and so on. So if love is the highest transaction there is, then... Us loving God by faith who have never seen him, the angels can see him, they live in his glory, we live in darkness. 
when people choose by faith to believe and especially to obey and especially to obey when it costs us, that's the most intimate, most vulnerable, most valuable kind of love there is. Do you see that faith and love are actually the same thing? In fact, faith is the greatest expression of love in the universe. God, I have never seen you. I've never touched you. We've never talked face to face. And even though all that I see in front of me is darkness and ignorance, and I don't know how this is going to turn out, I am going to obey you anyway, no matter what it costs me, because I have faith, because I believe you are there, and I believe every word you've said about yourself and every word you've said about me, that's the most vulnerable, most close, most trusting kind of love there can be, is expressed active faith. So I say faith is the most valuable thing there is in the universe and faith is the greatest kind of love that there is. That I will pay a price to love you even though I've never seen you. Even though I don't know how this is going to turn out. Even though this will cost me dearly or hurt me deeply. I'm going to love you anyway. Faith. Is that important? So I'm going to take a totally different angle on it than we have attacked so far yet and give us another angle on what faith is. So let's look at the words of Jesus in Luke 14. This is one of Jesus's parables. I suppose it will be very familiar to most of you. Then he said to them, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported those things to his master. The master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city. And bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you have commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. So here's Jesus telling us something he wants us to know about God and our response to him. One of the points, of course, that we can learn lots of different things from every verse in Scripture, but one of the main things Jesus wants us to get here is that sin is not a list of things not to do, like do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not do drugs, you know, that kind of stuff. Of course, those are all true, but Jesus wants us to understand that that disobedience to God or separation from God, sin, can be doing good things outside of obedience to him. The first guy, when God invites him to his great banquet, the first guy says, I bought a new piece of ground. Please excuse me. I'm too busy to come. Is buying property a bad thing? Nope, but this guy uses it as his excuse to not obey God. Hello? The second guy says, I have a new team of oxen, or I have a new car. God, I got to go, I got to go test drive it today. I'm too busy. Buying a new car or a business or whatever this is, 
that's certainly not anything that's bad or wrong to do, but it's wrong to do if God says do something else. The third guy says, God, I just got married. I can't come. It's certainly not wrong to get married. But Jesus' point is there are lots of good things that we do, perfectly acceptable things that make God furious when we use them as excuses to not obey him. So Jesus' point here is, in this parable, is that obedience to God is obeying what he says, not a checklist of what's good and what's bad, and I I make sure that I don't touch this list and I do all the things over here. That our obedience to God is relationship. That we do what he needs and what he says on any given day. Even if what I had planned is perfectly acceptable, it isn't today because God told me to do something else. Sin, as defined by this parable, by Jesus, sin is not a list of deeds that we can't do. It is uh, making excuses to not obey God. Even if the excuse is a perfectly acceptable activity, it's still sin. James tells us what obedience actually is. James says that obedience is faith. James chapter 2 What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, You have faith and I have works. So show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. Well, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works, And not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So James says that our faith toward God looks like obedience. It has to be. Our faith has to take action. James says, you can say you have faith all you want, but if you aren't doing anything in obedience to God, you can't prove it. That's what he says. You can say you have faith, but show me your faith by your deeds. That's as simple to paraphrase as we can get. You can say you have faith all you want, prove it to me by telling me what you did in obedience to God. That's as simple as it gets. That's, that's really, really easy. If you get that, we can go home now. I mean, it's, this, is, this is what it is this morning. James says that obedience to God is faith, and faith will equal obedience to God. There isn't any other excuse. In Hebrews 11, we get the list of the heroes of faith, and I'm just going to read in a really abbreviated version here. I just cut it down to simple clauses here from Hebrews 11. By faith, Noah prepared an ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out. He went out, not knowing where he was going. 
By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. By faith, Moses was hidden three months by his parents, because they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood. What I want you to notice here is that every hero of faith listed in Hebrews 11 did something. They took action. That's all I want you to see. And notice that every single example is action. It is not that they sat and had a prayer meeting and twiddled their thumbs waiting for God to do something. They believed God and took action. That's all I want you to see here. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Time would fail me to tell of Gideon and David and Samuel and the prophets who noticed the list of actions, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, tempted, slain with the sword. They wandered, were destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. All of these people are taking action. Or, in the case of the last list, where they're scourged and beaten, something is being done to them and they're not quitting. It's still not not a passive inactive thing action is happening and they are continuing on in faith so james says if you say you have faith there better be deeds to prove it you better take action faith is obedience to god jesus says obedience is doing what god says it's not a list of things i can't do and things i should do it is do whatever god says And James says, that is faith. You do whatever God says. That's faith. So we get that out of James 2 and Hebrews 11. And then in Luke 17, Jesus says something to the apostles, the disciples, that's really important. He says that obedience is faith. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The verses right before this is where Jesus says they have to forgive 70 times 7. And he blows their mind with that. You know, Peter thinks he's going to impress Jesus by saying, do you think I should forgive somebody seven times? Jesus, I think I can forgive seven times. <laughs> and he thinks he's going to impress Jesus in front of all the other disciples. And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. And the, the, and the next thing the apostles ask is, Jesus, increase our faith. We cannot, we cannot forgive somebody 490 times. So the apostles say, increase our faith. And so here is Jesus' response to the disciples' request, make our faith bigger, Jesus. And Jesus says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So Jesus totally blows off the question. Guys, that's a stupid question. You don't need big faith. You can have microscopic faith, and whatever you say will happen. Do you see that? He blows off the question. So I say, again, we don't need bigger faith. Faith can be weak and strong, but it's either present or it's not. The size of our faith is not the issue, Jesus says here. Increase our faith, and he says, no, you just need mustard seed faith. That's it. And then he goes into this parable without even 
skipping a beat, he goes into this little parable that tells us what it is he is looking for. Not increased faith, not bigger faith, not more powerful faith, but here's what I want. He says, which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down and eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. So here's Jesus. The disciples say, increase our faith. Jesus says, you don't need bigger faith. A mustard seed will do. That's all you need. Tiny little drop of it. Here's what I am looking for. And he goes into this parable and he says, if you were a landowner and you had servants working your fields, when they come in after working all day long, Do they get to sit down and eat first? No. They prepare your table and they serve you and you eat and drink. And then when you're done, you would let your servants eat. And he's talking about God the Father. And we are the servants. He says, when you've been working all day long in God's field, you don't get to come in and sit down and feast yourself. You feed your Lord. Then, after he has eaten and drank, then you get to come in and eat. You make yourself last. He says, and when you have done all the things that were commanded you, your attitude is to be, we're just unprofitable servants, Lord. All we have ever done is what we should have done. Here's Jesus. He says, when the disciples say, increase our faith, Jesus says, do what your master says. Ta-da! <laughs> faith is obedience. Obedience is faith. James says, you cannot have faith unless you show up to me by your obedience. The disciples ask for greater faith. Jesus says, obey. Do anything God tells you, even when you're tired, even when you've been working all day, obey God. And at the end of the day, Your attitude is not to be, oh, look at me, didn't I have such great faith and do such great things for God? No, at the end of the day, God, you've loved me more than I have loved you. I am an unprofitable servant. All I have done is what I should have done. All I did is what I agreed to do, which was to serve you and give you my life. Remember Jesus' other parable about the guys who get hired at the beginning of the day and the guys who get hired at the end of the day. And the guys who got hired at the beginning of the day and worked all day long complain that Jesus hires these guys with an hour left. Like, what are you hiring them for? I worked all day long for you. And he said, yeah, that's what you agreed to when you signed on. Right? So you sign on with Jesus when you're six years old or when you're 26. You serve him all your life. Somebody else, while they're bleeding to death after a car wreck, says, help me, Jesus. And they end up in the same heaven as you. We have no right to complain. God, I went to church and I tithed and I obeyed you and I forgave and I sacrificed and they lived like a total pagan and you let them into heaven at the last minute? Yep. Because yep. all you did was do what you agreed to when you signed on. That is the agreement. All or nothing. So here's Jesus saying, at the end of the day, if you want large faith, if you want increased faith, that's not the issue. The issue is do whatever I tell you. Without complaining, 
And think of yourself as my servant, and whatever I ask you to do is what you promised to do anyway. That's faith. So the goal of our life, the goal of our Christian walk, is not to increase our faith. It isn't to go do big things. It isn't to go and show off how big our faith is or look at what I did or look what I accomplished or what I prayed for, all these miracles that I saw, I changed the world. No, Jesus says, just work in God's field all day long. And when you get done and you're tired and hot and sweaty, you're not done yet. And after you've worked a little bit more, your attitude is, God, you, you've given me so much more than I've ever given you, I have no right to complain. All I've done is what was my duty to do. And that is great faith. Satan, his original sin was to grasp for big things. And the passage in Ezekiel and Isaiah that seem to describe Lucifer in heaven is described as, I will ascend to the Most High. I will be great. I will seek glory. I will do these great things. And Jesus came and made himself the servant of all. Which one do you want to be? Jesus says, don't seek for increased faith. Don't seek for great things. Just do what I tell you to do. And that is great faith. It's really, really easy. You don't have to accomplish fantastically flashy, wonderful things. Just obey. And that is great faith. Because obeying takes great faith. Does it not? It does. If we're going to walk with God in real relationship and in real faith, then it's, there's going to be some scary times. There's going to be some really hard decisions. There's going to be some things he's going to call us to give up or to overcome that we don't want to face or we don't want to change the status quo. We don't want to move. We don't want to do that thing. Oswald Chambers said, the violence of temptation is invisible. We can't know. We'll never understand other people's battles. I want to use, I'm going to tweak his phrase there, and I'm going to say, the violence, that's a really important word, the violence of temptation. You feel that when you're tempted to sin or give up or quit. I want to say, the violence of fear is invisible. And other people's fears are not what we fear. And what we fear is not what other people fear. So Jesus says, don't judge. What other people are scared to do, what will take massively huge faith for them to do, that would be easy for you to do, don't judge them because there's things you're refusing to do out of fear also. And I say, everybody's here with me. You're nodding your head. The violence of fear is, is invisible. We, we don't know what other, God is pulling on other people's hearts. We don't know what they're resisting or battling with to obey. But whatever God, when we walk with God, we're going to have to face our fears. We're going to have to obey, and that is great faith. Even though it may not seem like it to you, like, oh, this is a really stupid thing. I should be able to do this, but it terrifies me. Or you look at somebody else, you're like, they're so stupid. Why don't they just do it? Because they're terrified. And it's a real battle. Don't judge them. Hello? 
So Jesus says, great faith is just obey. Just do whatever I say. And what he says to do will, a lot of times, be very scary. Very difficult, very expensive, very painful, whatever the case may be. So I told you several weeks ago, real briefly, the story of how Sarah and I ended up back here in Oregon and that I told you that you know we had to make that decision and take action by faith. We didn't. We moved here out here without a job lined up, and God had everything perfectly set up for us. For she got a job with Dr. Clark here in town, and I got a job at the uh, teaching school in Elgin, and it was exactly what what fit me. It was my certifications and coaching what I wanted to coach. And sorry if you weren't here that Sunday. I don't want to retell that story, but. But it was, it was a scary decision, not nearly as scary when it's just the two of us as when we have kids, maybe, and that kind of thing. But, but looking back at the time, it was a big deal to us when we were 24 or 25 or however old we were. It was a big deal. It was, it was scary. I, I certainly don't set myself up as the example of faith for you, that you know, everything I've done is, is great and glorious. That's not what it all would mean, but I can only tell you my stories, what I've lived out. Well, the summer of 2001, when Pastor Dwayne came to be pastor here, uh, the Lord told me before I even met Pastor Dwayne, serve him, be his man, be the one that holds up his arms. And, and I did that, and it cost me dearly in another relationship. It cost me big time. Uh, and I lost, I was teaching school, and I had, I had to have summer employment to make ends meet. I lost my summer job because of my support for Pastor Dwayne. And it, I lost five or six thousand dollars one summer, and Sarah and I went through a time those three months where it was so terrifying. We were so terrifyingly broke. There was a summer. There was a, a, a day that summer. I stood in the grocery store, and I was physically shaking and crying because we had no food at home and we had no money to buy food. And I went to the grocery store expecting God to do something. Like, God, you know we, we need this. We have to have this. And, and so I stood in the grocery store and cried, terrified. And God paid for our groceries. <laughs> there, was, there was a time a man laid a $50 bill that summer, laid a $50 bill just temporarily. I don't even remember why. But he laid it on our kitchen counter. And I cannot describe the feeling to you. We were so completely broke. It felt like I had been fasting for 40 days, and there's a milkshake. I physically had to put my hand in my pocket because I wanted to grab that money. It was so, we were so starved financially. There was July and August. We had absolutely no money for our rent. And I don't know whether he knew it or not, but our landlord in July said, if you'll help me re-roof, our, re-roof your own house... I'll, you can trade that for rent this month. So I got to help on the roofing project, and no rent was charged. In August, we came up with half of the rent, and he said, that'll be fine. You know, the, the ways we expect God to come up with what we need are, are not, he didn't give us the money for our rent. He made it so that we didn't owe any rent. <laughs> and, and our landlord was super generous, a great man of God, and God provided even though going into it, I knew when I obeyed, it was going to cost me big time. And it really, really hurt. But, but I had to do it, and God provided. 
When I was teaching in school, I had a student who got encephalitis. He collapsed in the Walmart parking lot here because an infection, a sinus infection, moved into his brain and spine, and it paralyzed him from the neck down. He was, he was in really bad shape. I had to be life-flighted to Dornbecker's at OHSU, and he was, for a day or two, he was going to die, and then it sort of stabilized where he was, he was not really conscious. He was talking, but he was totally hallucinating and totally out of it. He was paralyzed on one side of his body or other. I don't remember which one. And I, I just knew I had to go and pray for him. I had to go and, and ask Jesus to heal him. And I figured I'd get laughed at or whatever. A few of them found out that I was going and they was like, well, that's a really nice thing to do. Like, no, I'm not going over to be nice. I'm going to go and get him out of bed. We're going to pray for him and he's going to be healed. And so I drove over to Dornbecker's in, in Portland and, and I got there and he's, he's talking to me, but I'm not sure that he knows who I am. He told me, he was so out of it that he told me that, that in the life flight helicopter, they'd cut his arm off and that he was still holding, it was his paralyzed arm. He said, they cut this arm off and it's not working right yet. I, they, just, they, they put it back on, but, but that's the state of mind. I mean, he's totally out of it. He's paralyzed. His, his mom has absolutely no real faith that I know of. I, and all the way over there, the devil is just telling me, you're an idiot, you're going to get mocked, you're, this isn't going to work, you're going to go and pray and nothing's going to happen. And uh, just, you know, you fool, you idiot, you moron, your pride is going to get you in trouble. All The devil tried all these angles, for sure. I was absolutely terrified. I was sweating and breathing hard as I walked up the steps in the room and I get there and mom was welcoming and she was okay with me praying but it was she was all over the map and and not at all with me at all and and there was just all sorts of activity and I I finally just you know I just step up and I I anointed him with oil and I put my hands on him and I said Jesus fix Josh's body and heal him Lord I curse this sickness in Jesus name and I command life and health and strength on his body and nothing happened he didn't get up out of bed and walk off. The, the doctors had said he may be like this the rest of his life. He may be partially paralyzed, but it will take up to a year of physical therapy. The next day he was in his right mind and up and walking. He was completely healed the next day. I don't take credit for that. I just, that's what happened. That's, that's what happened. I, but I left without seeing any of that. So then now it's like, oh, you fool, you tried and you're a failure. You don't have the anointing. You don't have any power. Jesus doesn't love you. You know, all this stuff is going off in my head and in my heart. And as I go down out of Dornbecker, here, a man is on the sidewalk and he's walking like this. I mean, his most really pronounced limp. And I had just come from praying for my student and I had exercised about every ounce of faith that I had. And I, even in the face of all this fear and doubts and timidity going on inside of me and I drove on past him, and the Holy Spirit said, you need to pray for him. Like, uh-uh, no. No, I'm driving home to Elgin. Thank you very much, Lord. I am out of here. And I don't know if you know Dornbeckers, but there's a really steep hill, one-way street, and I had to find a way to turn around and get back up, go all the way around the backside, and all the way back, and he's still just limping his way down to the bus stop. And I was, I was even more absolutely terrified to stop and talk to this guy about Jesus and pray, ask if I could pray for him. But I found a spot to park and I came up behind him and he's limping and I'm following him down the sidewalk. 
and I am so terrified I cannot make myself talk to him. So really I'm just stalking him down the sidewalk because he's walking so slow and I'm staying behind him trying to work up the courage to actually talk to him because I know God has told me to do this. And I was sweating. I was breathing hard. I was, oh, I'm sure he thought I was going to mug him. He turns around. He says, what? Well, that's a great way to start off. <laughs> And I just, I just had to spill my guts. Like, I saw you limping, and I am a believer in Jesus Christ, and I thought I would like to pray for you if you would let me to see if the Lord will heal your leg. And I'm sure those weren't the exact words. I'm sure it was more like, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> that's what it was. I'm sure I was tripping over my tongue. But uh, as I recall, I actually, I was so white with fear, uh, I'm not exactly sure what all happened. But I, I think I prayed with him, and we talked, and he was in a big hurry to get rid of me. Uh, it wasn't a, a nice, chatting, relaxed moment. He was in a big hurry to get rid of me, and I'm sure that I was, seemed like a total idiot. But I did it, and I got in the car, and nothing had happened, and I didn't see him healed or anything. I, but, but I got in the car, and I felt not just relief that it was over, which I did, but I felt like I, I obeyed. God, I did it. I did it. I did it. Several years ago, when, when Tony and Ken and Becky and I uh, took the bus and a bunch of people to San Francisco. So we took the church bus to San Francisco, and we were going to do inner city missions in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco with prostitutes and gay prostitutes and drugs and, and homeless. And I am as country boy as there is. Uh, I am as, maybe Silas has got me beat. But I grew up in the, in, in the back in the sticks as far as anybody could be in the sticks. I am a small town. I mean, our address was a town of 60 people. And, I am, and God has me on this inner city mission trip. And I was the bus driver. And as we came into Oakland in whatever six or eight or 12 lanes of traffic that was, I don't even remember, the traffic was terrible. But the closer we got to the YWAM base in inner city uh, San Francisco, the, the faster my heart was beating and I was seeing white. And I, I actually thought I was going to pass out. As I drove into inner city San Francisco, I'm like, what am I doing here? If I was by myself, I would totally turn around and run home. But I couldn't because I had 20 people or so in the bus with us, and, and I'm the bus driver, and I was absolutely petrified. And I was like, God, why do you have me here? Why? I have nothing I can say to these people. They're so totally the opposite of me. I don't understand them. They don't understand me. I have nothing. I have nothing, God. I was I was petrified. I should not have been driving. I was so scared. I thought I was going to pass out. I drove there and I unloaded the bus and I drove the bus around to the parking lot and I was by myself and I, could, I physically could not make myself get out of the bus. Like I'm not getting out of this bus. I can't let Ken and Becky and Tony know that I'm scared. And Ken comes out and we talked and it relaxed me a little bit and we went in and things. But, but that night we're circled up in prayer and, and we're, it's after dark in inner city and we're headed out to just talk to prostitutes and drug dealers. Like, ah! And I'm, I'm holding hands in this prayer circle with a couple of little teenage girls and I'm the group leader. I'm like, I can't let them know I'm scared. Oh, help me, Lord. The week went really well. There was lots of really, really challenging experiences for me that week. But I came home, and, you know, I don't know that I could say that I did anything great other than I obeyed. I lived through it. (laughs) 
and I didn't run away. Do you notice back in Hebrews 11, one of the great tests of faith, what, these other people are shutting the mouths of lions and this guy is quenching fire and this girl is raising the dead and one of them is, they were tempted. How many of you know the battle of faith against temptation? When you defeat temptation, whether that's alcohol or lust or fear, when you, def- when you fight temptation, that is as real and as violent of a battle and as faith-filled of a battle as Daniel shutting the mouths of lions. You shut the mouth of the accuser. You shut the mouth of depression. You shut the mouth of the bottle or the porn site or whatever it is. With me, it was, it was fear. So... You know, I've told you before, I, when I called Oyvin, my, my, now one of my very best friends, uh, the missionary in Manitoba, uh, I just found a random number on the internet and I dialed it. <laughs> I mean, I knew he was a pastor, it was a church, but I had no idea who he was and I was, it's like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever done. I'm just going to call him up and start talking to him about his town and his ministry and, and God had it all worked out from the end back to the beginning, but but I just had to obey. I didn't set out to think, oh, I'm going to accomplish this great deed of faith. I'm going to set in motion this great relationship of ministry and miracles and mission trips back and forth over the years. It's like, no, I'm, I'm feeling stupid and totally unqualified and completely ridiculous. Jesus said, just obey. And that is great faith. Hello. When Jake Simonis felt the call to move to Thailand, those of you who were a part of our church at that time, you may or may not have been privy to the fact that he was afraid. He didn't want to tell his parents he was leaving. He was leaving the family business. He's leaving all of his, all of his family and everything he's known. And he's moving over there to a new ministry that is not established they don't, you know, it's not a thing that's been functioning successfully. We're starting a brand new work. Will it succeed? Do the people, you know, want it? Is this what God wants? All of these questions that are totally normal and acceptable, but he was really afraid. And we had multiple talks. It became clear to both of us that it was God and that he needed to do it, but he just had to talk through all of these what ifs. What if I sell everything and quit my job here and leave my family and I move to Thailand and it all bombs? Well, what if you marry a gorgeous wife and have the two most beautiful kids on the planet? You know, what if your ministry succeeds and what if you get to translate the Bible and what if you get to write scripture teachings that go around the globe and circle the globe and end up back at Camp Elkanah. Do you know Camp Elkanah this summer used Jacob's scripture teachings for the kids at the camp? <laughs> it was awesome. Harvest, our youngest daughter, went. For the first time we've ever sent our kids to Elkanah, she had a blast. It was a great, great time. She comes home and, Jake Simonis wrote our Bible study book, Dad. Like, awesome. Jake didn't set out to accomplish anything great. He set out in fear <laughs> and trepidation and what-ifs and sweat and tears and but he just went that's faith hello your life of faith 
has nothing to do with goals and visions and mission statements. It has everything to do with obey what God tells you to do. And when you look back, you will see his faithfulness and you will see that you obeyed and you may or may not think it mattered or had great results or I don't know really what that was all about, but you obeyed. That is big faith. Is just obeying. When the disciples ask Jesus, increase our faith, he says, just do whatever your Lord requires. Do the right thing, do the scary thing, do the loving, forgiving, selfless thing, and watch God act. Watch God blow it up. Judge God faithful and obey him like he will come through, even before he has. Regardless of the voice of the accuser or depression or fear, just do it. I have no idea what you might be thinking the Lord is leading you to do. A job move or a relationship fix or forgiveness or you need to confront this situation in your family or whatever it is. If you're scared to do it, that's probably a sign it's God. Hello? If it's a good and right thing to do but you're scared to do it, that's nearly 100% of the time, that's confirmation that yes, God is speaking to you. Yes, if it's something you want to do and that will benefit you, it might not be God so much. Judge God faithful. Yes, pray. Yes, think about it. Ask for counsel. Don't run off half-cocked. But don't wait for God forever twiddling your thumbs. Take action. You, sometimes you just have to dive into white-hot fear. I've waited long enough. I know this is God. I have to do it. Just dive in. And watch God be there. 